my brother had a theory about grief and you know what it takes to process grief and then like move on from it and his idea was that once you're able to integrate um that event as a part of the story of your life then you're able to move forward and he's he said that he thought unresolved trauma things that keep us stuck in certain places are situations where we're unable to integrate an event with our story or our idea of what our life is. Um, and I think specifically with friends, that is harder because of what we talked about, like whose story is it? It feels sometimes inappropriate to, to think about things in that way. And it also sometimes is hard to come away with a clear story. Like, who was I to this person? Were, they were someone to me, but was that truly who they were? Because their family maybe sees them different. Other people see them different. They see this situation different. And I think it can cause more reason to be stuck. Like, you have more of an inability to integrate that story because the pieces aren't don't come together as easily, you know? And that's not to say people have complicated relationships with family members, but yeah, we have really more clear channels to understand how to grieve family members and how to integrate that into our life story than we do friends, I think. Grief is, is universal and highly personal. Mm-hmm. And we all go through grieving, but rarely are we doing it at the same time. And mm-hmm. even if we, you know, even if you and I both lose someone equally important to us, we each had individual relationships. And so mm-hmm. it's still going to be a personal response and, and, and reaction, <laughs> like experience. Yeah. Um, and that can be really difficult for other people to swallow. Mm-hmm. And it can be even harder for other people to hold. Yeah. And it, it, um, I think it's, it's sort of like a, like a balance between, I don't need you to hold my grief, but I do need you to hold space for my grief. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference. And I think a lot of people feel like it's one in the same. Like if you're sad, I have to be sad. And it is kind of one of those things that they want people to hurry through because it's, yeah, it can be difficult to relate to. It can bring up their own, you know, trigger their own, maybe not so great grief memories, mm-hmm. um, either of being sad of something from their past or wishing they'd handled something differently. Uh, like I said, holding, just holding the space, like there's room for you to be sad and us to have a perfectly pleasant time together. It doesn't have to be, um, or, you know, room for me to be sad. And I'm not going to just be Eeyore, you know, about it. And I, I don't need to bring everybody down. But that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, it's hard because I I don't know. I think there were times where I was Eeyore. <laughs> sure. Like, especially in the very beginning. Because yeah. the very beginning is like. yeah so much it's so overwhelming and you can't be anyone except for Eeyore at least I couldn't yeah because I was also like so in shock I was like what is happening like 
what the heck? Like my world just like turned upside down. Exactly. So I totally was a bummer to be around. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I hope that I have learned from this that, I don't know. I hope I'm able to give space to other people when they're in that space because I think it is really hard to understand that and like be around it. Well, that's why I think these conversations are so important that, that you're yeah. holding here is that it's really giving a voice to the experience. So what did the research uh, from what you found, why is it that it is the research suggests that that proof is can be helpful? So when we talk about the proof of someone being dead being helpful, I like to describe grief as like a ball and your brain is a box. And in the beginning, your brain is quite small. The box is quite small and the ball is quite big and it keeps bumping around. And every time it bumps a surface, every time it bumps the inside of the box, you're hurting. And you're back in that, in that very first deep, deep, sorrowful pain. But as time goes on, the box around the ball grows and it hits the sides less and less often. Mm -hmm. It's never going to stop hitting the sides of that box. You're always going to have moments where you go back to that place and you're hurting and you're in pain, but it will happen less and less often. And you'll have time to grow around it and learn how to deal with it. In studies of pet owners, there, there have been studies of pet owners who have least recently lost pets. And in those studies, there are two conditions. There are pet owners who viewed and interacted with their pets' bodies, and there are pet owners who did not. So if someone was taking their dog to be put down and they couldn't bring themselves to be in the room with it, and then, you know animal go get, goes to get cremated and all they get back is a bag of ashes um, versus someone who's in the room with their dog while it's being put down, sits with it, and then lets it go. Mm -hmm. um, there's this phenomenon of false cues where, you know, it, 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 the most normal thing I can compare it to is like the phantom phone ringing where you like think you hear your phone ringing or buzzing or vibrating and you check it and nothing's actually happened. Mm -hmm. That tends to happen with people we've lost. Well, you know, sometimes we'll think, oh my gosh, did I just hear their footsteps? Did I just hear their keys in the door? With pets, oftentimes it's, did I hear the jingling of their collar? Did I hear the meow? Did I hear a bark? And pet owners who interacted with their pets' bodies reported fewer of those false cues than mm. pet owners who did not. Um, and those false cues are really significant because when you're grieving somebody and you get a cue like that and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's my friend coming into the house or that's my pet coming down the stairs. Then you're faced all over again with the realization that they are not there and the ball hits the wall of that cube again. And the more often those false cues happen, the more often you are sent back to that place of I'm in pain and I am grieving and I am hurting. Mm -hmm. The less often those false cues happen, it's, it's pretty much in, in colloquial terms, that's moving on or being able to grow from it. Um, the way I describe it is, you know, your box grows slower, the more cues you receive 
because you're not able to process life without them. Mm. You're constantly being reminded. You're constantly thinking, oh, they're just around the corner. They're coming back. Whereas when you don't experience those cues, your box is able to grow and you experience the ball hitting the wall fewer times. But then when you're in a situation where you actually are grieving a friend Mm -hmm. who isn't a family member, who is such an integral part of your life, like your actually daily life, and not to say that your parent isn't a part of your daily life, but I mean, I just lost my dad. So I could tell you that that's hard, you know, that, that history, losing that is hard, but when you lose a friend, it's completely different because those are the people that you laugh with those are the people you're silly with those Mm -hmm. are the people that you make memories with when you are at the pinnacle of your life like you know doing things going out to dinner um having a lot of fun sharing your family and their family having dinners together because you choose to Mm -hmm. and the, the more you share the more you're sort of like closer you know And Mm -hmm. so when you lose that, it's like this disconnect that happens to all of those feelings and you don't know where to stick them. You don't know where to put them. Yes. And the worst part about it is that if that person is married, like in my case, person was married, that person who survives doesn't actually want to be with you Mm, because it even hurts them more to be with people who remind you of them. Yes. So now you've lost the person who died. Plus you've lost the person who's not. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so heart heartbreaking. Right. And it's like, I mean, it's their choice. I mean, what am I going to, you can't say anything. It's their choice to grieve the way that they want to grieve their mm-hmm. choice to want to make a new life. But at the same time, it's like that whole section of your life is gone in the flash of the man dying, this person dying. And I don't think that that's what death's supposed to be from the intuitive stance. Like I know that he's in a better place and and not a better place. He's in an okay, a good place. And I know that he's with, he's watching them and he's with them, but on as human experience and this human experience, Mm -hmm. Like, I miss that. I miss that connection, you know, with his wife, with his children, with my family. The one that I'll share with you is about how I met one of my very best friends in this world. Um, If I have ever felt like I had a kindred spirit, it's her. And, um, this was in 2012, but at the time I was, um, I was in, I was an undergrad. I was, um, pre-med. I was studying biology, um, which was mostly a big, large matrix of classes. That was basically, I didn't know what to do. And that sounded pretty good. Like I was headed in a general direction that didn't feel like pure panic. Um, um, and so I was, um, I was taking a horse equitation class. It was a Western equitation class. And, um, in that class, right. Everybody gets a horse. You go through all the tack, you learn, 
Um, in this case, it was all the Western writing type of stuff, like how to saddle, how to bridle, how to all of the different things. Um, and there was this girl in there. She was probably a hundred pounds soaking wet and she had big rodeo hair and like a huge belt buckle. And she just, I, she caught my attention right away. Um, I think it was her presence, but it was also that she had her nose in a MATLAB book. Um, and for anybody that doesn't know what MATLAB is, it's like a big icky language that you can code really amazing things um, that have lots and lots of applications for. Um, so in her own right, right, I walked up to her and she was already a juxtaposition that just she had my interest. Like she was so interesting. And she was also hands down the best writer in the class. Like it just when she got on a horse, it seemed like she was just meant to be there, like way more than when she was just walking around. And so um I watched her and I watched her and I was kind of fascinated by her and we ended up talking and she said that she was a chemical engineering undergrad and she wanted to go to medical school. So at the time, right, we kind of had a similar path of that. And so, um, interestingly enough, I ended up kind of doing a 180 in my life and the next semester, um, I was also a chemical engineering undergrad and it was kind of a union that was just supposed to be, um, from that point forward, like we took all our classes together. Um, we worked together, we studied together. Um, and she was just, I mean, the yin to my yang in so many beautiful ways that just, you know, she made me feel like I belonged in a time that I never really felt like I did. Mm. Um, and so that that partnership right or just that uh, that ability to feel like i was forging into this impossible future doing this impossible thing um it just felt not lonely and it felt doable and um it was just you know the the coolest way to meet somebody and then to know that like that that type of just casual interaction turned into one of the most profound and deepest closest friendships that i have that's so sweet. I'm like actually crying right now because <laughs> it's just so beautiful. Ugh. I think especially when you said um, that she just her presence made you feel like you belong. It's just amazing to me that it only takes one person to make you feel like you belong. And it could be that you feel like you belong in a group of a hundred people and only one person there is needed to make you feel like you belong. And I think when the really intense magic happens, like you're describing, I don't, I just, as I get older, I appreciate it so much more because it doesn't happen all the time. Like, it is kind of rare, and I would roll my eyes whenever my parents said it, <laughs> but it's actually true. <laughs> like, you know, as I meet more people, just for everything to line up so perfectly, you know, their energy, their personality, the timing, the path, like all this stuff to line up so beautifully, it really is like a kindred spirit. And I just, I have such a deep appreciation for it now. I've lost children 
and I've lost both of my parents. And those were hard. But this losing Lisa was something in a totally different family because someone's going to kill her. And there's a date and a time set. And you watch that date and time count down and count down and count down. And you and then there's appeals and you get your hopes up and then they're overturned and then there's another one. And it was just this roller coaster for two months, just this huge roller coaster. And, you know, my Lisa would not allow any of her friends or family to be there. And I wanted to be there so bad. And back when we were together in prison, I always promised her that I would be, but she wouldn't allow it because she didn't want any of us to suffer by watching. Because Lisa was still my beautiful friend, Lisa, at the end and caring about other people. And so I wasn't there. And her children were there, but they weren't inside. They were outside the prison picketing and, you know, holding signs to try to save their mom. And uh, so I wasn't there. And I don't know exactly how it all happened because... There were no cameras in there, and I didn't see. But she was executed seven and a half hours after her scheduled time. And I wondered, you know, was she laying on that table that whole time just waiting? Was she? Did they bring her in and take her out and bring her back and take her out? I mean, what was it she was going through those last seven hours? And... And I'll never know. But she's at peace now, I think. And so maybe it'll all be okay someday. But it still just feels like such a loss for so many people. And it's just hard. It's still hard. That's and George so and I are very close, and I see George. I saw George every week for quite a while, and now I've moved out of town, and I haven't seen her for a while. But George and I would just get together, and we would just cry, you know, for those whole two months because we felt so helpless, and there was nothing we could do. And, you know, I wrote to Lisa, and... Some of my letters got returned one time because I used a blue envelope and you know, they're not allowed to have colored envelopes. You know, it's just so stupid. What? You can't what have a colored heck? envelope and you're going to be dying in a week, you know? Oh so, and God. so, you know, we just, we just tried to be together and hope that she could feel us loving her from a distance, but it was a terrible thing. And That's I think, terrible. I think we need to end the death penalty because what the family feels, there's no excuse for putting a family through that on purpose. And there's been innocent people who've been executed and we know that. And yeah. <clears throat> just executing one innocent person should negate the death penalty forever because you can't undo executing, you know, it just... So that's something that I feel very strongly about the death penalty. And I hope that in talking about Lisa, that I can maybe present to people a side of the death penalty that they never thought about, about what it's like for the people who love the person that's being executed. 
And just from what listening to you talk and also reading your book, I mean, I really felt her, her spirit. Yes, and that's what I wanted. I'm so glad to hear that. And, you know, I had some book reviewers on a on an Instagram book tour who have been reviewing my book. And one of them, she pointed that out and she said, Toby talks about her friend, Lisa Montgomery, who did this horrible crime. And, and I felt like I knew Lisa and I could understand loving Lisa. And, and I thought that was just beautiful that she wrote that in her book review, because that's really what I wanted people to feel. I didn't want to preach at them about Lisa. I just wanted them to show the Lisa that I knew. Even like friends changing over the years, and I don't even know if the word best friend was used, but like in third grade, I had this best friend that I'm doing air quotes. And we spent so much time together because when you're that age, like you want to spend every day together. And like we were sleeping over each other's house like twice a week. Like every Wednesday was half day at school. And we so we would go to the other person's house after 12. Um, and then after third grade, we kind of drifted apart. And then in middle school, we hardly talked at all. And then I kind of like observed her passing notes with this girl and they would like fold up notes for each other and tuck them in their shoes until they saw each other later. And then they would pull them out and they'd be all like sweaty and they'd exchange them. And it was just like really intimate and like sweet. And I was like, oh man, like we used to be really close and now you're smuggling notes (laughs) with this girl. And I just like, I'm really sad. (laughs) Uh, I feel like that was the exact same experience I had. Actually, it's crazy <laughs> that you, I'm like, Did they smuggle your, notes in their shoes? Yes. No, well, they, they oh started, they started like exchanging notes and, and, and it was also kind of like, they started dressing the same. They started like, you know, like, like she would sleep more at her house and then like, like they, they started developing their own language. And then, and what really hurt was other friends or other, you know, classmates would be like, I'm going to say her name's like. Sophia or something whatever because that's our name but they would say Sophia where's Susie and she'd be like I don't know and before it was like oh she's getting a brownie or she'll be right back or you know whatever it is but it was just like this like clear dismissal of like so I don't care anymore you know which you're in middle school you know what I mean like I get it emotions are all over the place but it's still something that I think everyone remembers in their own days I feel like or maybe this is just me because I'm super sensitive. I feel like we still carry these wounds with us and they might be really deep down and really subconscious, but I think that part of me is still sad about all the friends that drifted away over the years, even though like the drifting away was very natural. Like that's just what happens. And maybe some of it was handled immaturely because of age, but like other than that, you know, it just happens. And it was like probably the first time I learned that lesson Uh, of that people drift apart like all things one day die Um, because when you're young you're like everything's eternal you know and then you see things in your life die including relationships like for the first time and then that like the first ones you will never forget I don't yeah I I 
I agree with all of that. I mean, I think I do think we do carry those those wounds and we do grieve those middle school losses or elementary or whatever it is. And that's part of being human. And it's also like that's what we still do now as an adult and what we're going to do when we're like 80. It's like but I think it's important to allow that grief because, you know, even though they're still out there, those friends, you know, it's like you did have great memories and you laughed probably those laughs where you don't hear anything. Those are the best. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you're laughing and there's no sound coming out of your, oh, yeah. out of your voice. It's just like you're like for like 30 minutes. <laughs> like those are the best. I love those. And it's like, you know, those days it's like, you know, that's when you had all that, you know, fart jokes and at least I did, you know. Uh-huh. They're, they're good memories. They're really good memories. Just six months ago, a colleague of mine, I work with the company where we do satellite media tours, and she went on, drove vacation with her husband. She This was her uh, third husband, but this was the right one. She, he was really, uh, he is really her soulmate. Um, and they went on, she loves animals and hiking and they went on this hiking tour in I think this was in Oregon but it was just it was it it, it was what what she and he had always wanted to do mm-hmm. and um we get a call that she had a hiking accident and died instantly and Tamara was probably about 10 years younger than me it's interesting probably of the losses because she was young and vital, mm-hmm. it's been one of the most interesting transitions that I've experienced. Number one, I'm constantly think about her, and, and I talk, I talk to her all the time. Mm-hmm. We had we'd known each other for 17 years, worked together on and off, but we had never exchanged gifts or anything like that. And three months before. She sent me an email. She said, send me your address. I saw something that reminded me of you. And I get God bumps every time I think of a story. Mm-hmm. And so I get this cup. I always sign my emails and have for probably 25 years, love and light. And this cup says light and love. Aww. And so that was so sweet. When, yeah. she, when she crossed over and now I have this momentum and that I, you know, I drink out of the cup every day. So the loss is more me missing. Well, in, in, in her case, I miss her because we, we work, we work yeah. together so much. Um, you know, something will come up and, and I miss her more than I would have thought. And I do talk to her. Certainly if I say good morning when I'm having my tea um, in, in the cup she sent me. And I'm so yeah. the cup. It's like, oh my gosh. Because you can use it every day. Exactly. And it's very plausible to me that her soul knew and that's why she <laughs> that's why she sent it to me. You know, because I, I wasn't her best friend, right? I wasn't her boyfriend. I wasn't her sibling. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I was just barely becoming something important to her. Um so I've also struggled a lot with like, you know, it breaks my heart, but I am not, this is also a classic struggle for me is like, I, I'm not the primary site of trauma 
and therefore my feelings are not worth discussing is kind of like sort of a classic and that's not of course true um Mm. and everyone's feelings are worth time and discussion and care but I really struggle with um seeing other people as sort of the primary hurt person and so I need to kind of put up and shut up to take care of the primary hurt person or to not cause more pain to the primary hurt person. Um, and so I really struggle with the idea of like reaching out or something because I'm sort of like, who the hell am I to be like, I don't know. Can we talk or whatever? Mm. Yeah. You've touched on something that I think is way more common than people have even said out loud yet. Because I know exactly what you're talking about. I've talked to other people who felt the same way when they lost a friend. Because there is that fear and that feeling that the family and the partners Mm. have more claim. And that Mm -hmm. we need to, like, I don't know, like, stay away or, or respect their boundaries, which... I struggle with that because there might be some truth to that, but that also doesn't mean that we should completely discount our feelings. And it just, it's so, it just sucks. Yeah. It's complicated. And it's so funny because I think about like in anyone I've loved and lost, right? If somebody reached out to me and was like, I would love to hear a little bit more about what this person's life was like, I would be like, absolutely. I'm dying to talk about that person. I loved them. I care about Mm. them. You know, I know, like, my response would never be like, how dare you? I'm over here doing grief that's more important than yours, right? Like, I I can't even imagine wording a response like that. And so, you know, you also have to trust people to set their own boundaries. And that, you know, all of that, I've been through a lot of therapy. (laughs) Right, all of that stuff. (laughs) Um, Um. my therapist laughs at me all the time. He's like, you've clearly had a lot of therapy because I will circle his job around for him um, <laughs> going like, you know, and I know I'm dismissing my feelings right now and I know my feelings are supposed to be valid, but actually I feel like my feelings aren't valid. Like <laughs> I already know, I, you know, I know the like right answer is uh-huh. that like, of course, like you have to be open to that person's boundaries, but you can't just expect them to reject you or whatever the fantasy of terribleness is. Um, right. But the idea of actually going like online, finding this person, opening an email or a message or something and writing something is like true. I mean, terrifying. Like Mm -hmm. I, um, it's a little martyr complex of like, I'd rather just be in pain over here by myself than accidentally cause someone else more pain, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, that's so hard. I think it also perturbs me because in some ways she's such a mystery to me still because there were so many questions I didn't get to ask and have answers to, right? Um, mm-hmm. That maybe had I been able to go somewhere and hear other people talk about her and get this like clearer portrait of her life because I only knew this one 
beautiful and exciting, but small sliver. I think maybe that would have helped yeah. um, process yeah. it because it felt almost like not like my imaginary friend had died, right? Like, but this really weird feeling of this massive thing has happened for me and everybody who knows me is like, oh, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Right? Like they, I mean, they had no emotion mm. around it or anything. So I was having this like, I mean, bomb go off in my life. And everyone was like, oh, like there was a bomb? Sorry it exploded, but I didn't even – like, right? Like they oh had no idea. Gosh. Yeah. Um. So that felt like – not like gaslighty, but almost like – I truly – I mean, it almost felt like I was like losing my grip on reality a little bit Um. Ooh. because there was like no one else there to say like – like no one else was like reflecting my emotional state. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, yes, yes. Um, Like when you're walking around through life, like going to class, doing your thing, whatever, and like inside you're like a storm and everyone else is like, oh, we got a paper to write or whatever. Like, you know, like it, it was just really strange that my internal world felt so terrible and the external world didn't reflect that at all like it was like nothing happened and then my other friend uh, who I was close to Sandy again met her through the schools where the kids were she had breast cancer they gave her then she cleared that and then years later she got bone cancer it gave her two years, oh my God. but she lived eight. Now, her family is very religious. Her son is a priest. They did go to Lourdes. She got the waters and all the prayers. And I think I do believe in that. I do believe in prayer and mm-hmm. healing. And um, and then I just, whatever, you know, I took her to chemo a couple times when she, you know, we stopped for lunch after when she was getting chemo and was available. And then we would do things depending on her energy. It was just... What do you feel like? I'm too tired. That's fine. Just acknowledging. And I think just being with the people while they're here and hearing them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd love to see you, but I just am tired. Or, I mean, I'm glad because we used to go out for dinner and have a cocktail. It's kind of one of our rituals. Yeah. And one night she, she called. It was a Wednesday school night. I, I mean, I'm not in school, but still school night. And um, <laughs> I said, she says, oh, I feel like a martini. I said, Okay. I'm coming over. Aww. So we had Mon Martini. She goes, I'd like another half a martini. I said, okay. So that was the last martini I had with her oh. because she kept getting sicker. And if I had just said, oh, I have to get up in the morning and do da 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 da, or I can't, or I'm so glad I just didn't even do that because that was really the last time we had a drink together and hung out we didn't do anything big we sat in the chairs with our feet up and drank a martini Mm -hmm. and then um you know she really really fought the big fight we go on vacation with her family and finally she called me and she said i i just can't do this anymore i can't do the chemo it was just you know too much so um i i I respected that and Mm -hmm. um close to her family Um, and so you know, she was real clear. She was so organized. 
I mean, <laughs> she she had a binder that she did put together about when I'm gone. Oh my gosh! And every single thing you can imagine: the doctors, the dentists, passwords, the banks, the any paperwork, the house, because she ran the whole family and mm-hmm. all that. So everything that needed to be done at any time was wow. all spelled out in this binder. And oh it's so responsible. Like, that's really responsible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, she had time because she was so tired. She could sit and just watch TV or sleep. She didn't have much energy. Mm-hmm. But she wanted to make sure that everything was handled. I was blown away when I heard about that. I don't know how other people will react at times. And so going back, I think as that late teenage woman, I didn't know how to ask for what I needed at that point in time for fear of judgment. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That hits hard. Mm. That is yeah. so hard to do. <laughs> I also didn't know how to do that in my around, I guess, sort of around the same age, early 20s. And I think I'm still learning how. And I, th- I feel like it was even mm. recently that I like learned that that was even a thing. I was like, people don't just aren't just supposed to give me the right kind of support right away without me asking. <laughs> right? Yeah. You're supposed to yeah, know. How do you not? Know? How can you not read my mind? I don't right? understand. <laughs> right? It's like, how do, how do you not know that this that this is how I want you to ask me those questions or hug me or whatever it is? But you you really do. You have to share with people how you want to be nurtured. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it makes me so sad that you all weren't able to talk as much as you wish you did. And I don't know, I just kind of feel like that's really sadly common, that sometimes it's just so hard to talk about it that people just don't. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I feel like that kind of makes it fester more. I mean, I think there's something to be said for really opening and up opening up and talking about it mm-hmm. um even though it can be hard to know what to say like what do you even say you know but even saying like i am so shocked like my world's upside down mm-hmm. just like even saying that but it's like yeah maybe people's instinct is to carry on as normal as possible? I don't know. I think that that's a huge part of it. Because I think that just like we need to ask how we want to be nurtured. Um, same holds true for other people too. So for other people, their coping mechanism might be that, no, I can't talk about it. I need to manage my own emotions on my right. own. And so that's where it's giving everyone the permission to figure out, okay, how do you need to manage those emotions and how do you communicate with someone that this is what you need versus this is what they need? Mm. And that's really hard if a friend group 
doesn't create that safe space or there's never been a reason to necessarily talk about those things in the past because no one's been affected on a common level like that. And so I I think that you pick certain friend groups to be able to share certain aspects of your life with and it may not be that every friend group is the right friend group to ask for what you need. If, for example, someone caused extreme, extreme harm against a loved one, murder or assault, like so many things, how how would one even begin to broach something so huge? Because I, I can just imagine how incredibly difficult that would be to think, how could I possibly forgive this person, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well... That was my path. That was my path. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's quite mystical. And I get a little nervous sharing it. But I also feel like it's important to share it. Because um, I seriously, I could not have caused the gift that that I received on my own. This is how I know it so fully. So as I mentioned, I was sexually abused as a child. Mm-hmm. And it was really haunting me as an adult. It was infecting my relationships, my sexual my sexual experience with my partner was always overlaid. And like, I I just get apocalyptic images in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really quite, it was all those things you speak of. It was very traumatic and it was very um, painful. And it was really getting in the way of my mm-hmm. experience of life. So this is again, coming out of the treatment center where I was like, man, come on, forgiveness, come on, forgiveness. And I was, it wasn't an overnight miracle that I got. I, again, Mm -hmm. I, I went to therapy. I went to 12 step meetings. I worked with spiritual counselors. I, I really had a full commitment to my healing because it was hurting Mm -hmm. too much. I wasn't living well inside of this story, but I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't get out of it. So adding up, you know, therapy was helping 12 step was helping working with like all the pieces that I was doing while I was just practicing forgiveness were coming together. I was sitting with my, my spiritual counselor and I was in the triggers of this story again. And she did this prayer for me of forgiveness, the way that I teach it now. And, and just an asking and just an opening. Well, that very weekend, I was living in LA. I flew to Chicago. I was a director and choreographer for a living and I was being considered for a big job. And so I went to the table read. And mm-hmm. during there, there was sexual abuse in the script. And I was kind of taken aback. So here I am sitting at a table read with all these people around me, producers and everything. And I'm like barely breathing on the inside. So I made it through the weekend. I got on the plane to fly home. I remember this. I sat by the window. I put on my sunglasses. I looked away from people and tears started coming down my face. And I just was like, I asked that forgiveness set me free. I asked that forgiveness set me free. And I was just kind of begging for relief. And suddenly something I'll call it spirit. Spirit pulled me out in my mind, pulled me out of this story that kept haunting me. And it said, look at this the way I see it. And the whole abuse scene disappeared. And all that was there was light, dancing with light. It was just Mm -hmm. in back of everything, all the traumas, all of things. There is 
love, dancing with love. There is a, a source of goodness that we all are, and that's what's real. Everything else overlaid over it will dissolve. And every one of us will find ourselves in the center of our own divinity, our own natural power. That's what I was shown. The story was taken off of it, and I was shown what's really happening. And then that story was kind of put into a ball. This is all in my mind. And it was thrown out into the universe. It was like, this will never hurt you again. Oh, wow. And then I kind of popped back into my experience. I know that's so crazy mystical, and it's weird, but... It happened. And mm -hmm. from that day to today, I have never been haunted by it. In fact, I was told, by the way, you won't even think of this unless you use it for teaching purposes. Oh that was the gosh. only reason. Like this. Suddenly yeah. it'll come to me for teaching purposes and I'll tell the story. But throughout my day, I can't tell Hannah. It's not in my cells. It's not in my memory. It's not in my body. It's not in me anymore to even think about or go to. I mean, that is what I would call a miracle. The miracle yeah. of forgiveness will dissolve the pain. It will release you from the story and it will place you on higher ground where it cannot, a story can no longer touch you. That's honestly, that's my deepest truth of it. Yeah. And that was my experience of it. And I wish, I wish that for everyone. I really, mm -hmm. because I feel like I was just given this gift but the reality was I wasn't just given it. I had been working. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's one of those like, oh, you're an overnight you're you're an overnight success. No, I've been doing it for ten years. <laughs> yeah, you did all that work, you asked for forgiveness over and over. Yeah. 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 I mean it wasn't an easy time getting there. I, I will admit that. Like I had to really dedicate myself and it was scary and there are times I didn't think it was working at all. But then suddenly it all culminated in the right moment. And I really had a, had a, had a miracle. Wow. Yeah. And all I know is like, I'm not special. Like if that can happen to me, that can happen for everyone. Spiritual healing through forgiveness really does work. Thanks for listening. Friends Missing Friends is produced by me, Hannah Rumsey with co-producer Sydney Bauer. Original music is by Erica Siegling, featuring The Lost Wayne. Artwork is by Heidi James. If you have a moment, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Together, we can cherish and remember the friends we miss. I'll see you soon. <laughs>